Rehab with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robohub podcast. In today's episode, we will learn more about efforts to support people who have lost the function of their legs. Robotic leg prosthetics are a particularly interesting field which aims to enhance physical and functional recovery from orthopedic and neurological injury through advanced robotic devices. Active lower body prosthetics work to move a person's weight, emulating the calf muscle, while semi-active devices use small amounts of power to improve the performance of the active prostheses. Several kinds of semi-passive devices exist to improve prosthetics. Our interview Audro caught up with Peter Adamczyk, assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They discuss some of the problems with active lower body prosthetics and the improvement options offered by three different semi-active devices, shiftable shapes, controllable keels and alignable ankles. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Peter Adamczyk. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, I'm in mechanical engineering department, and my work in general is rehabilitation engineering with a particular focus on uh, lower limb prostheses um, in a semi-active sense, so we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, and uh, a little bit in uh, rehabilitation robots with some unusual twists on that as well. What do you mean by semi-active? Semi-active uh, basically means that the power that we are willing to spend on our prosthesis is so small that it's never going to be able to move loads uh, on the order of body weight, which is a, a distinction from most active prostheses that have a motor and a gearbox and a powertrain of some kind and battery power that are sufficient to add the kind of uh, power that muscles normally do to uh, people during walking and uh, potentially running. Uh, so our devices are expressly not that. They uh, basically work uh, in a mode where the actuation on it is adjusting some property, which then interacts with human dynamics uh, as, uh, as under the person's control to make uh, a better outcome than, and, than, a, than a completely passive uh, static device would do. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me explicitly about the people you're trying to help, the amputees, and describe what kind of amputation they have? So in particular, these uh, techniques are for people who have an amputation of the lower limb. Uh, they're relevant for people with either a transtibial or a transfemoral amputation, but my work is fo- focused on foot and ankle devices, so mm-hmm. um, it would require somebody else's work to do the knee, to do the knee uh, at this point. So we'll say transtibial uh, amputation as the, the case, the mm-hmm. injury case uh, that is intended for this purpose. One of the interesting... And that would be cut off right below the knee, correct? Anywhere between the knee and the ankle, essentially. Um, okay. The... the Typically, it's about mid-shank, but mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, it could be anywhere depending on what the injury was, how, where it came from, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever the surgeons decided uh, on a given day. Okay, so tell me about the normal way of helping these people. Uh, so I'll tell you about the, the uh, standard passive first, just briefly, and then, then the actives as well. So the, um, the standard prosthesis is basically a springy chunk of matter. 
stuck to the end of the leg, right? So you have a socket that wraps carbon fiber around the residual limb. It's held on with a gel liner. It has a, uh, a python, which is usually an aluminum or carbon tube that goes down to a foot and ankle prosthesis. And on the end of that uh, is some combination of foam, leaf springs, wood, metal, uh, bumpers, urethanes, plastics, whatever, all kinds of things. But all they generally do is deflect under the weight of the body and the loads you apply to them. That's good because it's reliable. A person can learn how that works and, and use it for everything. But it's not good because it's trying to satisfy the functions that they have uh, for across their whole daily life. So it's trying to be a standing foot. It's trying to be a walking foot. It's trying to be a potentially a running foot. They have to climb stairs, stand in elevators, balance on buses, all, all the kind of things that a person does, all with one device. And so it's not clear but unlikely that it would be uh, optimal for all those different things. And so the idea, uh, the idea of active prostheses in general was to, instead of doing this very coarse approximation of springy ankle mechanics that are sort of learned from walking uh, of the normal body, it's intended to really take a, a replacement approach, a biomedic replacement approach uh, to getting ankle function back again. And so that's where the use of uh, powerful motors and, and uh, energy output uh, comes in. But powerful motors have significant mass. Mm -hmm. They also require significant batteries, and those have significant mass. And all this mechanism takes significant height so that you end up with things that can be six, eight inches tall. And that limits the population that can even use it because uh, it's directly at odds with what surgeons do when they do an amputation. They try to leave as much of a residual limb as they can because, uh, in general, outcomes are better the longer the residual limb it is. What kind of outcomes? Uh, walking speeds, uh, comfort, uh, perceived balance. These are kind of the standard things. Uh, energy cost, I believe, scales with that. Mm -hmm. Maybe don't quote me on that one. <laughs> but... Um, Anyhow, so, so outcomes in general are better with a longer residual limb, and that's primarily because a person gets better mechanical leverage over the device that's attached. Mm -hmm. But it's at odds with the powered prosthesis uh, uh, paradigm. And so that brings us to the semi-active devices, which can be built very small. Just to be clear, this is flexing, basically trying to emulate the calf and flexing the foot down to power the step through? Yeah, so the powered prostheses in general are uh, restoring an articulated ankle and the power uh, input and output Mm -hmm. um, that that control it in a natural uh, natural case. Almost all of them are planar, in the, meaning toes up, toes Two down, but that's it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a little bit of research that you, I think, uh, saw as part of this conference as well um, mm -hmm. that that is trying to break out of that as well as some of my work. Um, so more is coming, but all of it is uh, is trying to produce power that articulates the ankle again. Mm -hmm. So fully active orthoses are prostheses. Prostheses are heavy, tall, and expensive. Yeah, would that's, be a summary. That's my that's my punchline well. on that. Yeah, yes. and often planar. Yeah, and often but heavy, planar. heavy, tall, and expensive is the okay the takeaway for that. So, would you tell me the title of your talk yesterday? The unofficial title. The unofficial title was "Shiftable Shapes, Controllable Keels, Alignable Ankles, and More." Yes. So, I'd like to speak about each of these devices and how you've designed them. So first, would you tell me about shiftable shapes? Shiftable shapes. So this um, is an idea that uh, came up when I was doing my dissertation research at the University of Michigan in the 2000s. 
Um, the, the idea is that I, much of the analysis that's done on persons with amputation, and, and in fact a significant amount of analysis done on persons without, uh, has led to characterizing the foot and ankle system as though it were a piece of a wheel. And that's actually pretty effective for most of the stance phase of gait. It doesn't capture the push-off action, which is actually critically important, but sort of this rollover dynamic, as it's called, leads to something called a rollover shape, and that has particular parameters. And this, what is, this the is in the roll of the foot as we step, kind of as we transition from ball of the foot to, or heel to ball of the foot to toes? So in right. general, it's been characterized during walking forward, and so yes, it's the, it's the motion. It's actually defined as a circular shape that represents the motion of the center of pressure under your foot, moving from heel towards toe, uh, and then transformed up into a lower leg reference frame, uh, usually centered at the ankle. Mm-hmm. And the bottom of it is at the heel because it's fixed length? Uh, not necessarily, actually. Oh. So the bottom of it usually comes out to be a little ahead of the ankle joint. And so that's one of the parameters that characterizes it. So uh, what happens is you trace out the center of pressure. It is a little bit fuzzy, but generally a pretty good measurement. And it looks circular in a graph. So it looks like a circle drawn sort of through your foot Mm -hmm. from the side. Um, And then if you fit parameters to it, you get a circular radius and a location of the center or the bottom of it. And that usually ends up being somewhere on the order of an inch ahead of your ankle joint. And... uh, and obviously the, the bottom of it is le- even with the bottom of your foot because it's interacting with the ground. Uh, but then the radius has a particular parameter that is pretty reliably uh, found for a natural body and most good prostheses follow it as well. Uh, and that is basically 30% of leg length. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so going back to this, so we have this shape that we believe we, it's good in walking and it covers everything but push off. Mm-hmm. Now... Tell me about the problems of it. The problems uh, of it are that, um, above all, if what you have at your foot-ankle system is just an arc, then it's impossible to stand still on that arc. Uh, the radius is not large enough to, uh, to center your forces above your center of mass right, and, and produce an, uh, a writing moment uh, reliably. So if you have, say, two of these, you actually can't stand still. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me about the experiment that you had. We, we saw a video of it in your talk. We saw a video uh, of Carl Zellick, who's a faculty member at Vanderbilt now, back when he was a graduate student as well. And he was, um, he was told to stand still on two arc shapes that were a little smaller than that magic number, just for dramatic effect. But uh, what we saw was the instruction, Carl, stand still. And uh, he was unable to, essentially. He would wobble slowly, make a bunch of adjustments, and then have to take a step. Uh, and that was, again, because the interaction mechanics of that arc shape with the ground are just not sufficient to, to provide that writing moment that you need without moving your feet. Mm-hmm. Now tell me about your device. And Yeah, so um, given the benefits of uh, walking on this rolling shape, we actually didn't talk about the benefits, so let me go back to that. Oh, yes, go ahead. The, the, the benefits of um, walking on this rolling shape uh, are actually that they, they make the mechanics of walking quite smooth and uh, reduce the amount of mechanical energy you have to put in to the gait. So the experiment that I did during my dissertation was uh, changing this radius artificially on people uh, with a artificial devices that are basically shaped wood blocks. 
and they would uh, walk on those, little pointy ones, big swoopy ones, and we measured the amount of mechanical work it took the legs uh, in walking, and at a radius of curvature a little bit lower than that magic number of 0.3 leg lengths, uh, the amount of mechanical energy take to, that it took to walk was uh, reduced below what it takes for normal walking in an intact population, which is a pretty remarkable result. Uh, there was a, a metabolic result that had energy savings up to a certain point, which actually matched that magic number. So with, uh, with those benefits in mind, the nice mechanical smoothness, the redu- reduction of mechanical work, and the possible metabolic benefit, we decided to build a prosthesis. Why do you think there is a metabolic benefit? So that's, a, that's actually a, a question that's interesting in a couple of ways. So the uh, metabolic benefit probably comes from this reduction in mechanical work that happens. So mechanical work of the legs um, has to come from muscles somewhere. Muscles burn calories. And so when we measure the oxygen consumption that's used to produce those, uh, to, to convert those calories into mechanical energy, um, that that chain of events uh, produces a benefit when you can make that work output lower. The, uh, so what about this design makes it so the work is lower than a healthy person? That's a- it's an interesting question, right? Uh, and it's not completely clear. The, uh, the, the idea that we uh, considered is that the motion of the center of pressure under a rigidly supported ankle... Right, so this this whole ankle assembly with the arc on it, in the experiment was uh, it was attached to the bottom of a leg where the ankle had been locked up by a boot. So um, all that weight support of having your uh, center of pressure and your body weight move out towards your toe was cost free essentially. Right, you didn't have to produce any muscle forces to to um, to support it, and then. The consequence of allowing your weight support to move out towards your toe and beyond uh, is that you don't start falling over the end of your foot uh, as early as you normally would. And so the longer this arc shape is, the, uh, the less you fall and the less you actually dissipate energy on your new leg when it lands. Very cool. So that's the savings uh, mm-hmm. that comes in. What if we were to give someone two of these, so one on each leg? Mm-hmm. <laughs> would you see good reduction or what do you expect you need that push off from the other leg or surprisingly the experiment suggests not so uh what we would what we would see in a person say with amputation if they just walked on a pair of these it's not clear nobody's tested it but on the intact population where we locked up ankles and, and used these arcs uh that metabolic benefit continued uh to to reduce the cost up until a uh that that magic number of 0.3 uh leg lengths so um that was that was actually a bilateral experiment, so we know exactly what happens as you get this savings mm-hmm. up to up to that point. But they can't stand still. So yeah, <laughs> interesting. Okay, so describe your mechanism with this, the device you've developed. Yeah, so the the uh, shifting shapes uh, mechanism was called the rock and lock foot, <laughs> and uh, it essentially implemented uh, an arc shape on the bottom that was close to this magic number of 0.3 leg lengths. Uh, and it was very smooth, so it just rocked back and forth uh, like an arc would rock on the ground. But this arc was made up of two segments, one for the front half of the foot and one for the back half, and each of them articulated separately, one at a point a little bit below the ankle and one at a point near the ball of the foot. And so if you can picture two circular segments that 
normally make a single arc and then each of them pivots at a different center, they no longer make a circular arc. They end up with uh, contact points at the heel and the toe, effectively. Mm -hmm. And that represents a flat surface, which is now uh, equivalent to an infinite radius of curvature. Mm -hmm. That is good for standing still. It actually feels like you're very stably um, interfacing with the ground. And so it's good for balance. So it shifts between an arc, at least three points, mm -hmm. and then... Um is it, is it more than three points of contact, or is it rolling? It is. Oh, so the arc is a rolling contact. It is a rolling contact? Yeah. Okay. So it's only touching effectively at one point at any time during yes. your gait cycle, or one line across the width. So it transforms between an arc and two points, a heel and a toe to stand on. Yeah, two lines at the, one, mm -hmm. at the heel and one at the toe. Yeah. Gotcha. So how would this work if someone was using it? Would it, when they're walking, it would be an arc? And then when they're standing, it would transform to the two points? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, it, it's pretty easy to make it switch modes just based on simple motion sensors, which are ubiquitous in your cell phones and mm -hmm. lots of other things these days. So, yeah. yeah, an inertial sensor like that. Okay. Now tell me about controllable keels. Controllable keels. This is uh, a project that's um, pretty recent. Uh, the idea is to modulate the stiffness of the prosthesis keel. So when I say keel, what I mean is the structural member that ends up supporting all your body weight, the, the strong piece down the middle of it. Usually this is some solid chunk of material that runs from the ankle towards the toe. There might be another half that sticks from that back towards the heel, depending on the design of the device. Other, other times that's just a cushion, some mm -hmm. foamy thing. So the design of my device has a foam cushion at the heel and a carbon fiber keel uh, leading forward from it. But uh, what's different is that this keel, while it has properties of its own, uh, has a backer plate behind it, which is, which is movable, that changes the effective stiffness. Mm -hmm. So for the audience, if you picture an adjustable diving board at a swimming pool, uh, there's a sort of a fulcrum or a weight support point near the middle of the board. And when you have a heavy person on it, you want the board to resonate with that heavy person's mass, so you make it a little stiffer by moving the fulcrum out towards the end of the diving board. But if you put a small child on it, you roll it way back in towards the base. It's the same design here. So we just take this backer member that's supporting the keel from the top and move it close to the ankle or out towards the toe, and that changes the stiffness of the keel in terms of uh, the, the forefoot interaction with the ground by a factor of roughly five. And why do you want to change the stiffness? Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. So the, the hypothesis, which is based on a certain amount of human data, uh, is that uh, changing across speed and task is going to be a very rewarding manner of adjustment uh, in this minimally actuated sense. So several things play into that. Uh, first off, the natural ankle uh, produces a lot more work the faster you walk, a lot more. And so standard prostheses actually don't do that. They're just a springy member, and that spring is loaded by gravity, essentially. Gravity pushes your body down, you push on the foot, it deflects however much that would lead to. And while the forces that go through it do change with, um, with speed, not, it's not enough to make a major difference in the amount of work that comes uh, into and out of this springy member. So uh, that's, a, that's a notable discrepancy between the natural limb and the prosthetic limb, right? Natural limb does a whole lot more work at higher speeds, prosthetic limb doesn't. So by actually controlling the stiffness, we can modulate that. If we make stiffness lower as you walk faster, 
you'll get greater energy cycling in and out of this springy member um, based on this controlled property. Mm -hmm. So we want a different spring in our foot depending on the speed we're going. That's the hypothesis, right? So whether people want that or not is, uh, is an open question, and that's what the research program is about. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that exactly the opposite would be true, that uh, because there is a change in the interaction force between a person and the ground, the person may end up wanting a stiffer, uh, a stiffer prosthesis keel so that when they do something on the leg side, that will interact more with less dynamics, I guess, between the person and the ground, right? It's a firmer connection. And so that could make it so that what people actually prefer is exactly the opposite trend. Less energy in and out, but more controllability as you walk faster. So it's not clear, and the experiment is, tried, is going to try and flesh out uh, both mm -hmm. directions of change, I guess, for that. I see. So that's just walking. But then there are other activities as well. So, for example, if you walk from a, a level slope and encounter a ramp that goes up, mm -hmm. then this ramp is actually going to, buy, uh, it's going to bias all of your forces out towards the toe of this prosthesis, right? Mm -hmm. And so a natural ankle changes to a certain dorsiflexion angle, as it were, right? You pull the toes up and just work with your foot in that angle. Mm -hmm. Prosthesis generally doesn't do it, and neither does this prototype. Uh, but by softening the keel, you can make it push back less, even though it's interacting at that same angle. Mm -hmm. So that tends to be a really uh, important uh, idea for managing slopes on the up direction, and then it's exactly the opposite for down. Uh, and then stairs uh, have the same kind of uh, preference, uh, uh, although it's opposite in sign. So uh, the way your ankle has to articulate or the way these forces move on stairs is completely different from ramps and level walking. So both of those are affected. And then the last thing is standing still, which accounts for some large amount of a person's time and use of any foot. Mm -hmm. And as with the shiftable shape uh, prosthesis there, um, probably you want a relatively stiff setting for that uh, in order to establish stability when you're standing still. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you mentioned these different tasks that you can do. What, what kind of experiments have you done? With ah, this device. So this is all pretty early. We've uh, just begun characterizing the mechanics of it, and it's a project for this summer to do the experiments on what people actually prefer. Very cool. Okay, I'd like to move on to alignable ankles. Would you tell me about those? Yeah, uh, alignable ankles have been a very popular thing in, uh, in prosthetics practice uh, actually over the past decade. So the first robotic uh, prosthesis I did nothing but that. It's, a, it's called the Oser Proprio. Cool device. It would lift uh, the toes or push them down to adapt to ramps or give you a mode that would work better on stairs. Many of the things we were talking about with the adjustable stiffness. Mm -hmm. um, that has been followed by several hydraulic uh, kind of versions that adjust damping or the neutral angle of the ankle for up and down slopes. Mm -hmm. And these have been pretty successful. People like them quite a bit. However, uh, they are all just planar, right? They live in the sagittal plane or the, the view mm -hmm. of a person the from the side. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that while that's great and that's much of what a person uh, feels, it's, it, it leaves one big thing out, which is stability. Yes. So uh, people in general have a, what we call an unstable toppling mode to the lateral direction, right? So there's a lot of active foot placement in this lateral direction when people walk. Uh, and it's, it's intended to stabilize uh, 
so that you don't fall to the side. And, and you, you mean that your feet do not necessarily stay in the same tracks while you're walking? They necessarily do not stay yes. in the same tracks, <laughs> as, as it were, right? Uh -huh. You have to move them in and out. And so studies of the variability of foot placement mm -hmm. show uh, greater variability in that direction. So you might step wider or wi you might step your foot out to the side or into the other foot. Uh, if you're walking That's to right. stay stable. That's right. And you have to do that, otherwise you'll fall over. And it yeah. has to be actively controlled. So uh, prostheses, so far, don't have any way of, uh, of controlling or adjusting these things. So what's typically done is that they, get, they either split a toe so that it sort of deforms as you twist your leg or lean on your leg. The two, the, you know, like your big toe and your little toe, move yeah. with the ground That's in that way, toe. so it sort of softens it. Um, or they put a springy element in this lateral uh, tipping direction in the ankle. But neither of those has the right sign for what you would normally want. So, right, so on a natural ankle, your foot can go to foot flat with very little moment and then sort of stabilize there mm -hmm. because the ankle is controllably articulated. Mm -hmm. So the, ideal, the idea in my take on alignable ankles is uh, to do a robotic one that actually controls this what we call inversion and eversion, this, this sideways tipping direction of your foot, mm -hmm. uh, and takes active control over it in the way that augments your balance. So we know that when a person is going to pick up their foot, they are going to place it towards the center line or towards the outside in a way that helps stabilize them under whatever particular dynamics they're experiencing at the moment. Right? So if they're falling to the outside a little too fast, they'll put their leg to the outside. This prosthesis, one way we're going to use it is to actually tip that ankle farther to the outside and give a little bit extra boost to that ground interaction uh, under the center of pressure uh, to, to push, the person, push the person back towards the, the center line. Gotcha. So what does the device look like? Uh, so the device we've designed is actually an ankle module, and we're still designing it, so it's not done, done yet, but it's uh, about 8 centimeters high and six centimeters in diameter, mm -hmm. give or take, maybe seven. Um, and it, it is basically a cylindrical stack, mm -hmm. but the interface between an upper cylinder and a lower cylinder in this stack is not flat. It's cut at a five-degree angle, or whatever angle uh, is appropriate for this case, uh, for, for a given use case. So we chose five degrees just because that's a nice number. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if you rotate this upper cylindrical member and you rotate the lower cylindrical member, uh, they, these five-degree angles have a complicated geometric interplay that ends up moving the toes up or down or the foot into inversion and eversion. A little hard to wrap your head around how the geometry of that works, but uh, that's essentially the driving mechanism. So we motorize that angular motion, that twisting of the upper and lower cylindrical members mm -hmm. and essentially actuate both dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, and inversion, eversion mm -hmm. um, using a common mechanism. Now, I'm having trouble picturing this. What if you're walking straight? Mm -hmm. Does it have an angle with this? Or is, do, you, do you develop an angle by twisting? So in the neutral configuration, you, it's essentially a, a single cylinder that's been hacked at five degrees, right? But it's yep. still a cylinder that's upright. Oh, I see. Right? So in the neutral configuration, it's just no different from a standard mm -hmm. prosthetic pylon. But then when you start rotating the pieces, you can rotate them in opposite directions yeah. and have a, a single axis go up or down, or you can rotate them in the, in the same direction and have uh, 
from neutral, that doesn't change anything, right? But if it already had some angle, then the, it'll switch from an inversion angle to a dorsiflexion angle, for mm-hmm. example, right, as it rotates around. A little, a little weird to describe in words. But we'll have a video in the post. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but very interesting. How did you come upon this idea? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> it popped into my head one day. Oh, yes? So uh, there has been additional research um, on uh, active uh, prostheses that have this same two-axis property. Mm-hmm. Um, but since my take on things is the semi-active device, which is low, po- uh, low profile, low power, low weight, um, I thought that there was quite a bit of benefit that you could get by, uh, by doing this controllable ankle where it just moves while the foot is in the air. So that was the concept, and then I actually did go through several uh, potential mechanisms, uh, you know, lead screws on the corners and uh, cams here and there, but uh, this, this is effectively a form of a, of a double-mated cam um, and turned out to be one that, that has other additional nice properties like a friction lock, uh, locking mechanism, so we don't have to have a special clutch in it. It just holds itself under weight uh, based on friction. So this was the, the winner. Very good. So you mentioned it's early and you're still working on it, but do you have any, uh, are there experiments you're running soon or any yeah, idea we, of how it works? We hope to do some testing this summer on it uh, to find out both the mechanics of how it works as well as uh, whether we can do this balance augmentation. That's probably going to be a longer project because it turns out uh, characterizing balance and, uh, and characterizing any balance improvement um, it's not that easy in a research context, in any context. Uh, so there's going to be quite a bit of uh, both measurement work as well as interpretation uh, going on as we try and figure out whether it did what we expected and hoped. Mm-hmm. So in the future, what do you want to see between active and semi-active devices? How do you think they can complement each other? How do I think they can complement each other? They serve different markets in a sense so we talked about heavy tall and expensive for the the active ones that's not actually intended to be a terrible slight against them because they're they're massively useful right i mean they're they're incredibly effective um but a standard prosthesis that you can buy has a material cost of less than a hundred dollars to the manufacturer and a practical cost of somewhere between a hundred and a couple of thousand to the uh, to the prosthetist who who uses it, mm-hmm. and it's it's been an uphill battle for the industry to justify the need for things that cost a lot more than that for a variety of users. Mm-hmm. This is particularly um, accentuated by the the fact that most users of lower limb prostheses have uh, have had their injury or their surgery uh, to remove a limb that was. Uh, that was uh, having vascular problems one way or the other. So the most common is peripheral peripheral vascular disease consequent to diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is 80%-ish of the uh, amputee population. So that population has much bigger problems than the war vets who are coming home uh, in terms of their general athleticism and uh, activity level. And so... Uh, the, the need as well as anybody's willingness to reimburse it is less. So I think that semi-active devices can give them uh, significant benefits in this artificial balance type of technique or minimizing loads on the residual limb or making sure that this ground interface is the most beneficial that it can be under each of the tasks that they're doing for that, uh, that population that is, that is not going out 
running marathons and things. Um, and, and I think, I think that the semi-active devices uh, have a market to serve um, in that space. Thank you. And that's all for today. As always, you can visit robohop.org to find out more about this and all our past episodes, as well as a wealth of other robot-related news, views, photos, and videos. Our next podcast will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Rehab with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.